So it's my honor and privilege to bring the word to you today. Um, just as it worked out, I was available. And um, if you haven't heard yet, we are starting the book of Matthew after Romans, which I am very excited for. It's one of my favorite Gospels. I like them all. <laughs> what am I saying? But I like Matthew. Um, I like Matthew especially because Matthew draws in a lot of the Old Testament, and it just it kind of reminds me of how the whole Bible ties together and how the whole picture fits together. And so I would kind of encourage you, as we start moving in this new year, you know how you start your um, reading plans? And you start in Genesis, and then you make it all the way to about halfway through Exodus, and next thing you know, you're off reading all your different things, because somewhere in the middle of Exodus, it starts talking about tabernacles and law, and you just stop, right? Um, I would encourage you just to press through and do it, because um, Matthew's going to be applying some of those things. And it'd be really good to see that as you're reading your Bible throughout the year. It should be, should be fun. And so um, that's my encouragement to you. So as Bob mentioned, today um, is Advent of Hope. And, I, and I was, as I was reflecting on hope, I kind of realized the world does not act hopeless. The world acts like there's a lot of hope out there. And they, and they put their stock in a variety of things, like education or understanding of science, maybe we understand psychology, all these things that they hope that if, if only we did this, everything would be better. Um, and so you have this outlook, um, this kind of rosy view that the world might be better than it seems. All we need to do is fix a few things and everything should be fine. And the problem with this idea of hope is that the correct hope, to put your stock in the right thing, insists that the thing you're placing your hope in addresses the solution or the problem, the problem of your heart. So if you say the problem is education, if only we educated everybody, well, the most educated men were the ones who ran Hitler's regime. PhDs, master's degrees, they were the leading minds of their day. So education won't do it. Or government, well, we all know how that goes. Rise, fall, rise, fall, right? <laughs> um, understanding of science, maybe. It's often sterile and doesn't really address human needs. So they don't address the problem of our hearts. So what does the Bible offer for hope. Because the Bible says if you put your hope in the wrong thing, you're actually hopeless. You may act like you have hope, but there might be like empty pottery. It just kind of, all your hope just kind of leaks out everywhere. So what is it that the Bible is pointing us to as the hope for you individually and for everything? Humanity, creation, everything. What is that hope? And that hope is the promises of God fulfilled in Christ Jesus. The promises of God fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And that is the goal to which Matthew is writing his book. So if you turn to Matthew 1, we're going to read Christ's genealogy. Which, if you don't understand a lot about the Bible, sometimes genealogies get a little bit boring, but hopefully, you know, if you've been reading the Old Testament, this should uh, bring to mind a lot of stories and a lot of God's working. And then, if not, I'm going to bring out some highlights for you. So, uh, Matthew 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron. And Hezron, the father of Ram. 
Amram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, who was a really bad king, by the way, <laughs> but he repented and was saved. Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheatiel, and Sheatiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathen, and Mathen the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the genealogies from Abraham to David were 14. And from David to deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with a child from the Holy Spirit. And we'll stop there. So the first thing Matthew tells us, um, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Jesus is his personal name. Christ is his title. Christ, in the Old Testament, was the Messiah or the Anointed One. And the reason they said the Anointed One was because there's three people or three offices which you were anointed with oil to signify the Holy Spirit coming and helping you for the purposes of which you are to serve. Those three offices were prophet, priest, and king. And the, and the Bible started looking forward to the anointed one, the anointed one, the one who is fully into the Holy Spirit that would fulfill all the offices perfectly, the Messiah, to which all of them were looking and pointing. Every king pointed to the great king. Every prophet pointed to the prophet. Every priest pointed to the priest, the Messiah. And now Matthew's saying, Jesus, who is the Christ, the Messiah. The hope of humanity is based on the fact of a Savior. You need someone empowered by God to save you, empowered by God to be your king, your prophet, and your priest. That is Jesus Christ. Now, the Gospel of Matthew is going to make this case again and again and again. It's going to establish in the birth narrative who he is and how he came specially by virgin birth. And then it's going to go into like Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount. It is a king establishing his law. You've heard it said... This is what you should do. That is what you should do. That is what you do. And no one spoke with authority like him because he was truly the lawgiver, the king. And then it goes through, and he is the great prophet, and then he dies, and he is our great priest. And so when all this is established, when all this is culminate, culminates at the cross, and Jesus rises from the dead, proving indeed that he was the Messiah, the last verse of Matthew says, Go. Go proclaim this good news 
to the whole world, to every nation. Tell it to everyone, because I am the hope of the nations. The problem is that in the very beginning, in Genesis, we rebelled from God. We rebelled, and our hearts were corrupted because of that fall. So, it's very interesting. When it says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, you may not pick it up, but I'll help you out. It's the very phrase used in Genesis. These are the generations of. These are the generations of. Genesis 2. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. Genesis 4. This is the generation of Adam. And every time it mentions genealogy, this is the generation. He is using a Genesis statement. Bringing us back to the very beginning. This is the genealogy of, and this is important, because all the genealogies from Genesis to Chronicles, which are the book of the narratives, all trace down to this one point, Jesus Christ. So, how are we to approach this genealogy right here? Because there are a lot of names. So, I suggest that we're going to use Matthew's um, clues or emphasis. First of all, he mentions specifically that Jesus is the son of David and the son of Abraham. So we're going to focus on these two, two points. And also, hinged on those points, he made this kind of cryptic statement from, Adam, or from Abraham to David, 14 generations. From David to the exile, 14 generations. From exile to Jesus Christ, 14 generations. He kind of breaks it up into blocks for us. And those blocks, note, note those blocks hinge upon Abraham, David, and then Jesus. So we're going to use those. Okay, so from Abraham to David, Jesus is the son of Abraham. That is important, one of the most important statements in the Bible. Because from Genesis 3 to Genesis 11, it just shows how mankind after fall just just collapses into utter chaos. Man killing man. It's to the point that God has to send a flood to wipe out the earth and repopulate it with Noah. And then in Genesis 12, God says, okay, I'm going to redeem through a family, through Abraham. God calls Abraham, sets him aside, says, okay, Abraham, I'm going to be your God. You're going to follow me, and I'm going to bless you. Okay? And, and he, he brings out this blessing in about three chapters um, the, the big two being Genesis 12 and Genesis 18. But here's, here's the point of the promise. If Abraham was in the relationship with God, God was going to bless him, and there were going to be four things. First of all, special relationship with God. He said to Abraham, I will be your God, and God to your offspring. That will be our relationship. Your offspring, I will be their special God. And you have to realize that in this culture, there's a thousand gods to choose from. But God says, no, special relationship with me alone. So he'll be their God. Second of all, he would give them an inheritance of land. Abraham was just a guy in a town, maybe with a house and a job. And God says, I am going to make you powerful, and I will give you land. Now, it starts off with, I'll give you the land of Canaan, that, where Israel is right now, Canaan. But then that, that promise kind of grows grows and grows. So by the time in the New Testament they're saying, oh yeah, don't you understand that Abraham knew it was not just a plot of land. It was the entire earth. The entire earth was going to belong to him. That's, we see that in Romans 4 in Hebrews 11. So, God will be their God. He would give them an inheritance. He would make them a mighty people. As the stars of the heaven and the sands of the sea, there would be a great nation and great kings would come from his loins. 
And then, the biggest point of all, he said, in you, Abraham, in your seed, all the nations would be blessed. That is the gospel. That from Abraham's lineage would come one through whom would bless all the nations. And ultimately, ultimately, it was pointing to Jesus Christ. Now, to be a child of Abraham was to be a child of promise. Now, the first child of Abraham was Isaac. When God gave that, um, created that covenant with Abraham, Abraham was old, his wife was old, and they had no kids. Sarah had not been able to have children at all. And so, for God to give a son to Abraham was a miracle. It was a miracle. And so, literally, Isaac was a son of promise. God promised him, and he showed up despite what humans would think would happen. Okay, and then, after Jacob, Judah, and all are in one sense called children of promise because they are recipients of the promise made to Abraham. Pointing all the way to the truly miraculously born one, Jesus Christ, who is himself the recipients of all the promises, and all those who join with him are called children of Abraham, if you put your faith in Christ Jesus. So the, for him to say, Jesus Christ, the son of of Abraham, is pointing to the fact that in Christ all the promises are yes, and that in Christ all the nations will be blessed. That is the gospel. So that is the first section. And it, and it kind of works out from Abraham, and <clears throat> despite everything, if you read the Old Testament, despite the chaos, despite slavery, family bickering, wars, 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 somehow this little tribe grows and grows and grows and becomes a nation with a king. The second king is David. The first king did not love God, did not obey God, was more afraid of man than he was afraid of God. And so um, God deposes that king, that's King Saul, and then sets in his place King David. King David is notable because he loved God. So, in 2 Samuel, and please turn here, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God makes another promise, very similar to the promise that God made to Abraham. God makes a second major promise that every Jew knew that God had made. So, we're turning to 2 Samuel chapter 7. So at this point, David is kind of, he's, the battle with Saul is over. David's, David's been established in Jerusalem, and he comes up with this great idea. Hey, why don't I make a house for God, which a temple? And God says, hold on a second. You're not the guy. So we're going to pick up in verse 8. So this is God speaking to David <coughs> through Nathan, the prophet. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following sheep, that you may be a prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you, have, wherever you went and cut off all of your enemies before you. And I'll make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel 
and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, declares the Lord, that the Lord will make for you a house. David want to make God a house? God says, no, I'm going to make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up from your offspring after you one who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him as a father and he shall be to me as a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. <clears throat> but my steadfast love will not depart from him, and I, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Forever. Okay. So a lot of these promises echo what God said to Abraham. But God is specifying yet again. Through Abraham, your seed will come. And now specifically, through David, your seed will come, which is kind of important. Because to be the child of David means that you have the right to be king. It's a royal lineage. If Everyone falls after him. Now, the first one, so almost immediately, the first one to come after David is Solomon. Who makes Israel about as great as it ever becomes? He builds a lot, and he brings in a lot of money, and expands the territory as far as Israel ever pushed out its territory. And so, in one sense, you say, aha, it was Solomon, and you might be right. It is, in one sense, Solomon, but Solomon is just a shadow, a shadow, a foreshadow of what was going to truly happen in Jesus Christ, because even though Solomon had a great kingdom, Many kingdoms have come after that are greater. And even though God said, I'm going to give you an everlasting kingdom, after Solomon, because of his sin, the whole the nation of Israel was shattered into fragments and civil wars ensued. <clears throat> and then it just gets really bad. We'll talk about it in a second. So in, in a very real sense, Solomon starts to kind of fulfill it, but then he never quite reaches the point to which Solomon seems, or that God seems to be saying is going to happen to David. So, all after Solomon, after things kind of pass on, and the prophets are kind of looking back saying, man, what happened to our nation? What happened to those promises? Was God unfaithful to his promises? They start looking forward saying, well, there must be another king coming who's going to fulfill the promises that God made to David. So again, leaning forward, looking towards this coming king. Okay. But after Solomon, after Rehoboam who split the kingdom because he was not wise, <laughs> there's like a sequence of kings who, for the most part, are bad kings, bad kings, bad kings, good kings. Bad kings, bad kings, bad kings, good kings. And as, as the Old Testament shows, as goes the king, so go the people. If the king of Israel says, hey, let's start worshiping foreign gods because that sounds like a great idea, the nation says, yes, let's worship foreign gods, because that sounds like a great idea. And the whole nation would go into idolatry. And then a good king would come back and say, no, 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 no. We are to serve the Lord God alone. And then all the people come rushing back, and they serve God for that reign of that king. And then the next king would say, well, 
Baal sounds pretty good because our neighbors have Baal, and if we both worship Baal, then it's politically advantageous. So they, and then it's just it's, what it's called is called syncretism. You're trying to merge all these together. Say, well, I can have God Yahweh, and I can have Baal. And they can all be gods, and they can be rule over us. Jesus, who is God, solely obeys God. There is no iniquity in Jesus. He leads his people in everlasting truth. God says of Jesus, I will give to you all the nations of the earth. And we see this because after Christ is is killed on the cross for our sins, as raised from the ground, victorious, and is ascended into heaven. He sits on the throne of David, ruling over the nations, and God says, because you have humbled yourself, I will now exalt you and give you the greatest inheritance I gave to anybody, the whole earth. That is Jesus Christ. Now, there's that kind of that phrase, and I kind of mulled on it for a while. There's this one coming, and when he has iniquity, I will strike him with a rod. Well, Jesus committed no iniquity, but he bore our iniquity and was struck for us with the rods of men. So here's a king who did no wrong, yet absorbed the wrath for his people. He is our king. So from Abraham to David to David to the exile, things got so bad that God said, I will purge you from this land. This, this kind of moves into, if, you, if you're reading First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, relay how Israel got so bad, God says, you're out. And then you have the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, telling them, you're out. If you guys keep going this path, I will remove you from the land. I will take your king away. All these promises, you will not receive them. And they don't listen, and they keep disobeying, and they keep serving foreign gods, and they keep just being what humans are. <laughs> Worshippers of anything we can get our hands on. <laughs> so God says, fine. By contractual agreement, according to the Mosaic Law, if they ever did this, God said, I will remove you, remove you from the land as many years as you forgot to practice the Sabbath year. Which, because they hadn't practiced it for like ever, it was seven years. Seventy years that they were exiled. Israel was supposed to be a city on a hill, a light to the nations. They were supposed to point the nations to Yahweh as the one true and living God. But their testimony was false because any, any nation that came marching by said, I'll take your God. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And, and to, the God, to the nations, it was confusing. The nations said, we have our own personal God, but you guys apparently don't have your own little personal God. You take any God that comes your way. Um, that's why God refers to it as whoredom. You just sleeping around with any God that shows up, basically. So they are removed. They are scattered as a nation. They were a people. When the Babylonians come in and the Syrians come in, they split these people up and send them a thousand different ways. Just go. And we'll not let you sit in little cities and become strong again so you can rebel against us. So the people are scattered. And the kings, what kings? Maybe vassals for a little bit. But after that, the kings aren't even kings anymore. Like when we read in Matthew 1, if, if you're familiar with your Old Testament, 
like the first 14 generations, you're like, oh, yeah, I know him. Oh, yeah, I know him. Oh, yeah. I know. And when you start getting into the kings, oh, yeah, I recognize that name. Oh, yeah, I recognize that name. But about two generations into the exile, who? Who's that? Who's that? Who's that? It's like they're nobodies. This is the royal line. They're nobodies. Just no-name people. By the time you get down to Joseph, who really is a nobody, a poor guy who's a carpenter scraping by, make, trying to make it, he's a nobody. So the big question becomes, and this, this is like a huge question, that even the prophets begin to ask God. God, you promised that there would be a king on your throne forever. You promised an everlasting kingdom. You promised to bless the nations through us, but there's no us. There's no king. All your promises have just vaporized into smoke. Where are you? Are you going to fulfill your promises? So the first foreshadow that God was going to fulfill his promises was after 70 years, politics just aligned themselves ever so perfectly, and a remnant came out of exile and were allowed to establish themselves back in Jerusalem, establish the temple again, and have a little vassal king, for a, government, a little governor in place. But when the, in Ezra records, when they reestablished the temple, and they did their first Passover after like a whole exile not being able to do any Passovers as a people at the temple, the old people wept. They wept because the glory of the temple was not as they remembered it. We came out of exile, but it's just so little what we're left with. So the exile post-exile, as the people come back, it's just a shadow pointing forward to the great, the great return from exile. So for this one, let me direct your attention to Ezekiel. Thirty-six. Now I find Ezekiel to be the absolute hardest book in the Bible. The absolute hardest book. A mole on it confuses me. <laughs> there's great promises in here. So there's great moments. Like, yes, I see it. Um, and this is probably one of the most famous passages out of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 36. Okay. So... Um, 36, verse 16. It says, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols which they had defiled of it. I scattered them among the nations, dispersed them through the countries, in accordance with their ways and with their deeds, I judged them. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name in that people, and in that people and said of them, These are the people of the Lord, which is literally the people of Yahweh, and yet they had to go out from his land. But, well, stop right there. So in other words, the nations mock Yahweh because his people have been conquered. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations in which they came. Therefore, 
Because I have concern for my holy name, therefore, verse 22, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came, and I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I, Yahweh, the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Verse 24. I'll take you from the nations which gathered you from the countries and bring you into your own land, and I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from your uncleanness. And from your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. And I'll stop right there. You can keep reading maybe on your own time. The next chapter, Ezekiel's looking over a valley of dry bones, carcasses slain in war in a valley. No one was there to even bury the carcasses. So just imagine bones scattered everywhere. And God says to him, can these bones live? Ezekiel looks at him and says, I don't know, but you alone know, O Lord. So God sends a, this is a prophetic image, God sends a great wind rushing upon these bones. The same word for wind that God breathed the breath of Adam. So a breath of life, he blew over these, and these, these bones turned into humans, turned into an army, and it's like and they're all marching back to Jerusalem. So in other sense, God says, as impossible, it is for those dry bones to become a living army, which is impossible. It is as impossible for you to be brought out of the nations and brought together in this great way again. But, just like I can make this army before your eyes, so can I bring my people back and bring them under my kingdom. I can do it and I will do it because I promise. I have not forgotten my promise. I will vindicate my name. And then in Isaiah, we read the passage, God begins to speak of a servant who will bear the iniquity of his people. How is God going to make them clean? How is God to give them a, a new spirit? They don't deserve a new spirit because Jesus Christ would come and bear the wrath that should send us into exile. He bears that wrath so that we can have all the promises. That is what this servant does, and it points to Christ. It points to Christ. So from Abraham to David to this exile to Christ Jesus himself, who Matthew is saying is the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament was pointing towards, pointing towards, pointing towards, pointing towards. And get this, this is my favorite part. Genealogies on the Old Testament. Always looking forward to the one who's going to come. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. Jesus Christ comes. How many more genealogies in the Bible? None. They don't care anymore. You want to know why? Because he came. That was the point of keeping track. He came. We don't need genealogies before. And now, instead, do you know how the family of God grows? Because people put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and they become the children of God. They are grafted into that branch, as it were. So, uh, two small things just to point out, and then we'll go to communion. First of all, so, I've been talking in the big corporate scheme of things. 
the big picture of the Old Testament. That was what I was trying to do with key promises getting you there. Okay? So that was a corporate view. But now I just want to momentarily go down to the individual level. Because almost every single one of these names in Matthew 1, except for the exile people because they don't know who they are, but almost every single one of these names, you could do a little sermon on each of them about what God did in their life. Because God wasn't just disinterested, standing far back saying, well, there's a people, I hope they make it. But no, God actually gets into their lives and transforms them into rotten scoundrels, into people worthy of receiving the promise, for the most part. There's some who walked away. But there are, interesting, four names that really just stand out in this genealogy. Um, And that is Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and the wife of Uriah, also known as Bathsheba. Now, um, the point, the, the reason why they stand out is not necessarily that they're women, although that um, genealogies will include women, absolutely, um, like Rachel or Rebecca, or these great notable women who are just really strong women of faith. Those are the ones that they'll, they'll say, oh yeah, by the way, Rachel, and oh by the way, Rebecca, they get put in. But these four ladies in particular, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba, are people, if you were trying to establish a king to a bunch of Jews, these are not the four people that you would bring up. These are the four people that you would try to like, oh yeah, they're somewhere back in the genealogies. And the reason being, Tamar had an incestuous relationship with her father-in-law, Judah, in order to produce a child. Now, I don't think she's expecting that she's going to be the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus. That somehow God takes that sinful situation and redeems it by his grace to produce something great. You have Rahab, who is a prostitute, a Canaanite prostitute, not even an Israelite, a Canaanite prostitute, who sees God's judgment coming and says, I surrender. (laughs) Can I join your side? And protects two spies and brings the complete ruin of her own city. (laughs) She kind of turns on her city. But that is heroic because God's judgment was just. And she knew it. And so she gets brought in. And not only does she just like, okay, you can come and be protected into our family or, or into our little community, but why don't you stay over there? That end of the camp. No, she ends up marrying into the lineage of Jesus. So she's right at the heart of everything that's going on. So God takes a sinful woman and redeems her and puts her in those line of promise. And then there's Ruth, who is a Moabitess. And Moabitess, Moabites were like the sworn enemy of Israel, who didn't who tried to stop Israel from coming into the promised land, and God said to the tenth generation, I will not let a Moabite in. But Ruth came and said, Yahweh is my God. So God brought her in. She marries Boaz. She's the grandmother of David. Okay? And then there's Bathsheba, who commits adultery with David and produces um, two children, one of which died um, after childbirth, and then Solomon. So Bathsheba, who... so. <laughs> You kind of get this, like, in the minds of the people, scandal, 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 scandal. These are the problems with the genealogy. And do you know what God says? I do not hide that. In fact, I deliberately included them into this genealogy because I'm a God who saves. I'm a God who shows grace. really different. 
So God works in the messiness of our own lives, in the tragedy of, in our tragedies, in our sin, and he redeems it because he is faithful. And he turns all things for our good, even the bad things that come from our own hand. And the second thing about it is then think about what's about to happen. This is where Matthew starts with his genealogy. He brings up these four women. And then the next verse, oh, by the way, Jesus was born of a virgin. Okay, you know what the Jews thought? Oh, come on. Oh, come on. Yeah, right. She was betrothed. What do you think was happening? So, and even in Luke, there's this, like this one kind of slight when Jesus is in his own town. They're like, yeah, we know where you came from. And they kind of slighted him. Son of God. Right. Okay. So a Jew would say, okay, I get that God's doing this, but why would he do that? Why would he allow it to be a virgin birth to a poor family in a God-forsaken part of our lands, Gentile over, overrun by Gentiles, and do it by a virgin birth so it actually looked like there might have been something going on? Why would he do that? <laughs> and it's almost like Matthew's pointing back to Jesus and said, have you not seen what he has done? He can do it because he's not doing this to come and be like this, at this point, this great king who's just going to stand over everyone. No, he's going to come down and humble himself and walk at our level and suffer at our level and then suffer beyond our level because on the cross he takes hell on our behalf. So God chooses the weak things and the despised things of this world to shame those who try to be proud and try to be wise. God uses surprising, very surprising means. So from corporate to individual and as we move into communion, from them to us, from them to us. Because in the first part, Matthew is writing to Jews to convince the Jews that this is the Messiah who is your king. Obey him. Okay. So now for us, we say, what do genealogies have to do with us? And as I've been trying to show you the whole time, it all points to Christ. And if Christ is your Savior, then you're kind of interested in how God brought that about. And the promises that God made. Because though Christ fulfilled many, many, many promises and many, many prophecies, he did not fulfill them all. Not all of them. In fact, some of them he kind of halfway did it and then stopped. Like, if you would read, like, the passage, and we're going to see this as we go to Matthew. Like, if you read some of the, like, and this was a show, this much, and if you go look, there's like, wait, what, that was like half the prophecy, God knows, okay? Because God is still going to fulfill those prophecies to the uttermost. So, we're in this very interesting space right now. Christians, church, all the Old Testament saints looked forward Where's the Messiah? Where's the Messiah? Where's the Messiah? They're looking back at the promise. God made a promise, but where's the Messiah? Now, we're in this interesting position where we say, that is the Messiah. God did it. And he did the hardest part of it. He took care of our sins. And now, the nation is going, the gospel is going out to the nations. We're waiting the fullness of the fulfillment of Christ. When he comes again, the new heavens and new earth, his kingdom will reign over all the earth. So God right now, he is working. He is working corporately in the world. The gospel, it's going to the nations. It will not be stopped. Nations have tried. Nations have tried. Kings 
have tried. It's unstoppable. God's doing it. He has purchased the people from every tribe, language, people group. They're all going to be reached. So we are delivering this gospel. We are going with this gospel on our lips. Um, as Bob read in this passage, how beautiful are the feet of them who bring good news. Bring this good news. Bring the news that Jesus Christ is king. And this is the hope of the world. That God will get into the messiness of your lives, my lives, lives of those around us. And he will redeem by his grace. So um, we are going to move into communion then. So if the worship team would come back up and the uh, ushers.
I like reading the Old Testament now um, for kind of a surprising reason. I have found that as I've kind of, as a Christian, looked at these promises that God has fulfilled and will fulfill, it has made me more and more convinced that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And I think my answer now to people, if I talk to them about why do you think Jesus is who he said he is, I literally I just have to say, because the Bible tells me so. And I'm not just talking New Testament, I'm talking Old Testament. And the more I've understood the Old Testament, the more I realize, I mean, the New Testament is just drawing on top of that. So how do I know that Christ is who he is, that this, this remembrance that we're about to do means anything? Because God's been working this for 6,000 years. 6,000. With specific, specific names, specific places, specific people's lives that have actually, actually been redeemed. No one can claim that. No religion can claim that specificity. God stands alone. He is the true and living God. So while we look back at this Messiah slain for us who bore our sins, and so we reflect on that. So Paul says, I received from the Lord that which also I delivered to you, that Christ on the night that he was betrayed took bread and broke it, saying, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also and blessed it, saying, this is my blood poured out for the new covenant, for the new covenant, which is ours. So whenever you eat this bread, Drink this cup. We do this in remembrance of him. With other in full confidence that God will fulfill the rest of his promises and we're waiting waiting for that day. So, um, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for our Messiah, our King, Lord, that you made these great and mighty promises and we get to partake of them, that we are blessed by you. Lord, we understand that in Christ all the nations are blessed and so it is our joy to obey the command to go and proclaim this gospel to all the nations, to tell them about you and they need to obey you because you are king and you rule. And God, there, there are dark days sometimes on this earth. And there are even times that we wonder um, how you are working. How are you bringing this about, Lord? And really, I think a little little minds couldn't really grasp it fully. So we trust you to be God and to do exactly as you said you would because you, st- <laughs> you put your reputation and your name on the line for it. We thank you for the love that you've shown us, and we pray that we could share that love with others. So be with us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.